Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Tea Podcast by Developing Lafayette. My name is Ben Powers. I'm your host. And what we like to do with this podcast is we like to invite different business owners, different community influencers in Lafayette Parish that really highlight Lafayette Parish and what we're all about. So today we have special guest uh, Danny no, Daniel. Uh, he also goes by Danny Landry, who's a candidate for district attorney uh, for the, there's three parishes that he's the district attorney for if he's elected. It's uh, Acadia, Lafayette, and Vermilion, right? That's correct. The 15th Judicial District. Yeah, so uh, we're going to be talking with him about uh, his experiences and what uh, qualifies him for this position and what are his plans for this position. So, but first, uh, we're going to go ahead and mention our sponsor, which is the Music Academy of Acadiana. Um, if you ever wanted to learn music, uh, there is no better time than now. You should have started yesterday, but you can start today, obviously. The Music Academy of Acadiana, uh, it's a great school. Uh, they're Acadiana's top choice for music lessons. Uh, they have piano, guitar, voice lessons, drum lessons. Drums are my favorite, but they have violin, saxophone, flute, uh, audio production. So if you want to, if you want to be a DJ or if you want to, you know, work in a uh, autom- uh, audio production studio like a radio station that you can learn all those tools. Uh, they have much more than that, though. They do teach students of all ages and styles. They have sent students to college and to compete in major music competitions. Uh, they have also premiered on major TV music contests like American Idol and The Voice. Uh, it's founded by uh, University of Louisiana at Lafayette Music School gar- graduate Tim Benson who's a local guy, Tim Benson, um, founded the school. So it's the Academy has been voted as top finalist in the best music school by readers of the Times of Kitiana since 2016 uh, and has won several other national awards. Uh, it's a great school. Uh, their, their goal is to make music lessons fun, educational, and to help foster the next generation of musicians and creative thinkers. Uh, you can check them out. Their website is musicacademyacadiana.com. Um, and you can also go to their Facebook. They have uh, all the social media stuff, you know, YouTube, uh, whatever you can think of. Just type in Music Academy of KDN and then uh, you'll, you'll find it. So we really, really appreciate that, Tim Benson. And uh, we look forward to continuing our relationship there. Um, and without further ado, Danny, welcome to the podcast. Oh, Ben, thank you for having me. So uh, tell me a little bit about yourself uh, and kind of what you what you're about before we go too deep into all the 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 political type of stuff well uh like you said my name's daniel landry but i go by danny everybody knows me as danny i'm a lifelong resident of lafayette uh grown up here lived here the entire time uh i consider myself old lafayette and, and old lafayette <laughs> i consider myself old lafayette i went to fm hamilton laboratory school good green. Uh, what is that that's actually a, a lab school at on the ul campus okay. that uh they would teach it's still edu- a it's still thing today? it's it's a hall now okay now they're talking about trying to reopen it but uh I grew up when the Bayou Vermilion was the outskirts of Lafayette, and oh, that's uh, the middle of town. So uh, exactly. So that's why I say old Lafayette. But I'm married uh, to my wife Nancy, 39 years. I have uh, three children. God has blessed me with uh, three wonderful children. My oldest son is in the oil and gas, and knock on wood, he still has a job. Uh, my middle son is a attorney and a, is also a juvenile prosecutor, following my. Uh, 
history as a prosecutor. And my daughter is uh, probably the smartest one. She's a pediatric neurologist doing her residency in New Orleans. And then I have uh, two grandchildren and my dog, Gabe. So that's a little bit about me personally. Um, wow, wow. That's, a, that's quite a bit there. But I've been up, you know, with the DA's office for 36 years. Uh, and you've been uh, an assistant DA, correct? Is that right? Uh, 36 years ago, I took an oath of office as a felony prosecutor. And for your listeners that don't know what a felony prosecutor is, we handle the most serious offenses, the ones that uh, carry the death penalty, life imprisonment, uh, uh, all the serious things, the murders, the rapes, the armed robberies, the child molestations. Uh, so I started my career uh, in 1984 as a felony prosecutor with then District Attorney Nathan Stansberry. Um, I served under Nathan uh, for many years until he left the office due to illness. Uh, District Attorney uh, Mike Carson was elected. Uh, I was appointed by him as a felony assistant. Uh, I served with him for 19 years. After he left the office, Keith Stutes became the district attorney. I was appointed by him as a felony prosecutor. In addition, um, he appointed me as the first assistant district attorney, which basically supervises the operations of the office, uh, handles all the major cases, uh, do a bunch of human resources as well as budgetary issues. uh, And it does cover the three parishes of Lafayette, Acadia, and Vermilion. Okay, so so your your history has been with those three parishes, correct? Like, um, so what is the? And this is gonna this is gonna make me sound uh, uneducated, but I'm I'm just curious. Uh, I haven't done a whole lot of research. I've heard of DAs before. I've heard them in reference to particular things that even I have been uh, involved in, as far as like little things here and there. Um, What is the primary job of a district attorney? Uh, Well, first of all, it's a good thing that you haven't been involved with the district attorney's (laughs) office because if you have been, you've either been a victim of a crime or you or a family member have been accused of a crime. The district attorney is basically the uh, chief law enforcement officer in the parishes or the judicial district. Uh, He's responsible for making the decisions of who's going to be prosecuted, whether a crime was committed, Um, when they're going to be prosecuted, what kind of sentence is going to be asked for. Uh, They basically, the district attorneys, oversee um, the operations of the criminal justice system. So what type of relationship does the district attorney have along with a judge? Because it sounds like there's some similarities there. Well, there's, there's actually three stakeholders primarily that are involved in the criminal justice system. You've got the district attorney's office. You've got law enforcement. We service 26 police agencies and sheriffs, uh, state police, university police. And then you have the judicial branch, the judges. So we're all stakeholders and participate in the process of dispensing and enforcing the rule of law. Okay. Okay. What are some of the, uh, if you can speak on any of these, but what are some of the craziest or wildest cases you've ever kind of been a part of so how long is this podcast uh, <laughs> probably would we could probably go six or seven hours um let's uh, let's let's get the super summarized version of a, a, um, a case well you know when you say wildest cases um you know we do make a decision on whether or not um, um somebody is prosecuted a lot of times we'll present it to grand juries or we review 
reports and we make decisions. Uh, I've had uh, one case where a, a homeowner caught a burglar breaking into his car, stealing his stereo, and um, he shot the burglar with an arrow, a bow and arrow. Okay, uh, different. And, and it was very different. Uh, hit him in his hand and he dropped the stereo. And so the police couldn't make up a decision whether or not to charge him with, you know, an aggravated um, assault or aggravated battery. And so the question became, what was his intent? And uh, after we got the report, it ended up that he was a national champion in archery. And he had indicated that if he had intended on hurting him or killing him, he could have done it. And he came and presented all of his trophies. So that was kind of a, a, a strange case. Um, you know, we have the serious cases. Um, you know, I have uh, I participated on the prosecution team with the Mickey Shunick matter. Okay. Um, that was a big uh, deal. That was a big deal. That's uh, probably one of the most impressive investigations that I was ever been involved in 36 years as a prosecutor. Uh, Dr. Richard Schmidt, which was a very uh, uh, unusual case where you had a doctor that infected um, uh, his girlfriend with the uh, virus to um, kill her, uh, which was a real, was the first time certain DNA uh, testing was done. Um, I want to say that there was a documentary that I watched. Oh yes, there was, it, it got a lot of national press and there was, uh, I think on Forensic Files yeah, or something. Yeah, I think I remember seeing um, something like that. But um, I've been involved in several uh, death penalty cases, uh, which are very difficult, probably the most difficult cases to prosecute are the sexual assault cases on juveniles. So um, we see a lot. Uh, we see parts of Lafayette and Vermilion and Acadia that people don't even realize exist. You know, and I think that's a, you know, I think there's there's some good in not being able to see some of that. Because um, if you did, if, if everybody got to see all the, the, the bad stuff, we wouldn't want to live anywhere. Right. Well, my... My wife likes to say uh, she has her little bubble, yeah. uh, and she doesn't like when my bubble crosses over into her bubble. Uh, and I said, well, the problem is, is my bubble is to protect your bubble, right. and that's what we do. Do you ever lose any sleep over some of these cases? Oh, absolutely. Have? Absolutely. Really? Uh, you know, I, I, I had one case, a uh, young uh, eight-year-old boy, um, uh, a sex offender from New Orleans came over here, went to a park with a dog. Uh, that had a little scarf on it, and he let the young boy, who was eight years old at that time, pet the dog and everything, befriended him, and then he left. And then he came back with the scarf, and he had tied the dog up in the woods and used the scarf and the dog to lure the young boy um, into the woods where he raped him. And uh, the problem with that case, I couldn't sleep because I had a son that was eight years old oh, at man. that time. So when I'd get home, after hearing that horrific testimony, and I'd see my son. So those are the ones when you stay awake. But I put the guy away for life, so, you know, nobody else has to worry about it. Wow. I would. I, I think I would lose sleep. I'm not one to lose sleep. My wife makes fun of me for that, but I don't know if I'd be able to sleep after that either. Well, you, you, you get used to it. I, I shouldn't say you get used to it, but yeah. you, uh, it's the job. Um, it's just as the first responders and the police and fire and the uh, EMS services, they and see, yeah. you know, sometimes we see the worst of worse in human beings, but we're there and we see some really good things too. I mean, 
on the flip side, you know, um, we make decisions that affect people's lives. And, uh, you know, I had a young man that was a college student at uh, USL at the time that got caught up in a car burglary ring and, and uh, stole 18 cars. And he came without a lawyer. Came that was in this district? This was in that district. 18 cars. Oh, yeah. Well, they were stealing a lot more than that. It was, oh, wow. a, it was a ring. The, the real bad guys were hiring college students, paying them like $500 to steal cars, and they would drive them to Houston. Um, but he came to see me. He didn't have a lawyer. He had one year to graduate um, from uh, USL at the time, and he asked for help for me to cut him some slack. And there was just something about him that I felt like, you know, he needed that second chance. Well. I ended up, at that time, we didn't have the pretrial programs that we've initiated to try to help people. Uh, we had what we called back then DA probation. So I put him on DA probation. He graduated, uh, sent me notice that he had graduated, went into the armed services, um, received multiple awards, ended up uh, getting to the rank of like uh, uh, lieutenant colonel. I mean, he got way up there. He ended up going back to law school, uh, became a JAG officer, um, and he saved some people's lives doing the military. So it, that was one of those things where you can make a difference, and, and it was the right thing to do. So your, your decisions can affect people's lives. Oh, absolutely. For the long run. Absolutely. And so you have to really evaluate a case to, to decide if somebody is deserving to be prosecuted or to be able to cut slack. Correct. Like, do people often beg you, regardless of what their their issues are oh, for right. slack? Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, you have to, a lot of it is based on, com I'm a big common sense person. Okay. Um, you know, and you, you look, a lot of times there's other issues that are involved, mental health, um, socioeconomic situations, um, you know, Sometimes I see young people that, um, you know, I, we had a young boy the other day. We started a pretrial program for juveniles, test program in Acadia, where we had a young boy that uh, had broke into a little mom-and-pop grocery store to steal bread and, um, oh, man. And, and food. And when we followed up on it, ended up that both of his parents were meth addicts. So, you know, the circumstances created, he's not somebody that belongs in the criminal justice system. He's somebody that resources need to be provided to help. Uh, I mean, if but you're still in bread and food. Right. Like, you're not, you're, uh, Well, we had another juvenile that she was stealing diapers and formula. She was 16 years yeah. old. And uh, she had a baby. And her parents didn't want to have anything to do with her. Um, so, you know, people like that, you have to look at their situations uh, compassion, uh, and see what are you doing? You know, is this somebody that's going to come back and harm society or is it, or is it not? Now I've dealt with the people that you look at them in their eyes and it's black and there is nothing there and they're just evil. Um, I mean, I've definitely dealt with evil people and they are evil people out there. And, you know, uh, so you have to deal with them as well. <sighs> God, so so I would not ever have have to deal with you as far as asking for uh, a speeding ticket to get fixed. <laughs> you wouldn't be that guy. Do they even do that anymore? What's that? Speeding, uh, fixing speeding tickets. Well, first of all, technically, okay, um, 
uh, fixing speeding tickets is illegal. Okay. There's wow. actually a statute on that. Right. Uh, the DA has discretion, okay, um, as far as who gets prosecuted, when it gets prosecuted, which would include state traffic offenses. So the DA has the authority to use his discretion if he sees fit. Um, you know, the question, it's the same as looking at a burglary uh, to a shoplifting, to a speeding ticket. The question is, is the person is going to be held accountable? Okay. For example, you know, uh, many years ago, we would get a phone call from a father that would say, my daughter is 16 years old, got a speeding ticket. Um, uh, I took her car away from her for the weekend, uh, but I don't want it to affect uh, my insurance. Well, in that case, the girl learned that she can't speed because there's a consequence. So the DA in that situation would amend it to a non-moving or dismiss the case. So tickets are just like uh, thefts, misdemeanors, uh, even felonies. Each one, it's a question about holding, enforcing the rule of law, and making people accountable to each other. Okay. So fixing tickets is illegal. Yes. Wow. See, I didn't know that. Because, yes. um, you know... I'm There's actually... Now, that's not in Louisiana, but um, uh, it's either... Uh, I'm not sure which state it is. It's a West Coast uh, state where if you even asked to have somebody fix your ticket, and, and you know, that, that word to me has a nasty connotation. Yeah. Um, that's a crime. Just asking. Just asking? Just asking. So I'm guessing uh, California, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, that sounds like I, I want to say, say it's in Wyoming. Oh, um, wow, right. You know, just, it, just, it does sound like something California would do, though. You know, like so. just asking to fix a ticket <laughs> is a crime. Good grief. Uh, well, I didn't know that. Um, so I have had tickets fixed in my lifetime, but I was young. I was like 16, 17 years old. Uh, I did not know it was illegal. And the people that helped me... I'm pretty sure they had to have known that it's not, but... Well, that, that you, once again, you're using that word fixed, yeah. okay? Because there is still, the under the Constitution, the district attorney or the city prosecutor has the discretion, okay? Depending on if it's the appropriate thing in the situation. Okay. Because you got to remember, not only on traffic offenses, but on criminal offenses... We review what the police send to us. Gotcha. So the police may arrest you or issue a ticket to you. And when we look at it, we realize that it's not in compliance with your constitutional protections or they didn't have sufficient probable cause to make the stop or there's some intervening uh, situation that would in turn allow we couldn't prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt because it's it's not like television it's you know we have to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt now something that has recently changed is that uh, jury trials it used to be that you could convict somebody with 10 of 12 jurors agreeing on guilt or innocence now there's been a decision called the ramos decision so from here on out any jury trials have to be completely unanimous there are only two states left in the country, uh, Oregon and Louisiana, that still allowed non-unanimous juries. Uh, and the U.S. Supreme Court just recently ruled in the Louisiana case. So from here on out, we have to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to 12 people to get 12 people to agree that the person committed the crime. So if, so if one person is 
not in agreement, the, the case still rolls. Well, no. The, the, what happens is uh, they're either found not guilty or the case is mistried. Okay. If they hold out, after a period of time, the court can uh, declare it a mistrial. Okay. Interesting. And then it just kind of gets thrown well, out? Well, either the DA makes a decision to retry it or <clears throat> the DA goes and says, I can't get to that threshold of beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay. God, there's a lot of decision-making yes. with the district attorney's office. Yes. God, that's a lot of weight. Well, learning to do that, a lot of it comes with experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you, like you said, you have over 30 years of experience. Uh, what, 36, you said? 36 years. That's a, that's a good bit of time. Um, and so what is uh, your educational background? I mean, I see you have, uh, you went to LSU. Uh, it looks like you received a BA. Tell us a little bit about... Um, the the education behind what qualifies you to be a district attorney? Well, I, I went to LSU. Uh, I got my uh, undergraduate degree in political science, uh, then obtained my law degree from LSU. When I got out of LSU, I went and worked for the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, um, which is in Lake Charles, but it covers Lafayette, Vermilion, and Acadia Parish. I worked directly with the judges screening cases and interacting with them. After that, I came back uh, home to Lafayette, um, started practicing um, civil law and criminal law. I've worked for a while in the federal public defender system um, on the defense side, did that a very brief period before Nathan hired me as a felony prosecutor. So I got thrown in the fire pretty quick um, <laughs> uh, out of law school, but I had a passion for it. Uh, and I, you know, I felt very uh, comfortable. Uh, I wanted to be a lawyer to do trial work, jury work, um, so I started trying a bunch of cases. And uh, as it progressed, I got more serious cases, um, and I had a good knack for it. Um, and I'm a people person, so I, I interacted with uh, the victims, uh, interacted with uh, defense counsel, um, and we did the right thing. Um, you know, some cases are tougher than others. Um, so having worked under three district attorneys, one thing that uniquely qualifies me is that I saw with the three DAs what worked and what did not work, okay? Um, so I'm not Nathan Stansberry, I'm not Mike Carson, I'm not Keith Stutes, I'm Danny Landry. And the last six years serving as the first assistant has broadened my, my ability because I had to deal with the budget issues, which is, uh, you know, as everybody knows here in Lafayette, the uh, parish, city, there's issues there. Yeah. Um, and you had the pandemic, which is causing financial issues. Uh, we had this terrible hurricane, uh, which has not really adversely impacted our area too much. Some of Vermilion and Acadia, it did. Um, so I've dealt with all that. I've worked in the budget process. Uh, we implemented a new case management system about three years ago, uh, which is uh, was really critical. And it came to light this year with the pandemic because when the governor closed everything down in March, I was able to take over 100 employees and go completely virtual uh, with the office because like I told people, just because there's a pandemic, the Constitution doesn't go away. When you get arrested, you still have constitutional rights. If you're a victim, you have certain constitutional rights. So by being able to go completely virtual, we continued the 
uh, hearings, uh, uh, people's rights were protected, the victim's rights were protected. Uh, we still occasionally use it because they are not transporting prisoners around the state uh, to avoid any kind of COVID uh, issues. But uh, all of those in my historical background make me uniquely qualified to be the next district attorney. And I have some new ideas too. Uh, there's some reforms. There is a, a movement amongst the country for some criminal justice reform. Um, I'm, I'm really going to focus more on prevention uh, I, I think the uh, young people are the key to um, improving the, the criminal justice system, you know, hopefully keeping them out of the criminal justice right. system because it's not somewhere you want to be. Uh, but that's going to take a lot of community involvement. We're going to need to get the schools involved, mental health professionals involved, uh, law enforcement involved. Um, you know, there's a lot of stakeholders and it's, it's a community effort. Okay. Um, so you mentioned some of your, um, the ideas that you have, and uh, I have on pull from your website that you're actively involved in uh, developing a pretrial intervention program for juveniles, and I think you may have mentioned that a little bit. Yeah, and, and just so that everybody will understand, um, we revamped, uh, there, there used to be no formal program as far as pretrial uh, programs. Uh, one was developed uh, under a predecessor DA. Um, when we came in, we basically redesigned it uh, from scratch uh, to make our office more accountable uh, and to make the participants more accountable. Um, in fact, it's been so successful that various DAs around the state ask us for our program directors uh, handbook and they always I send it as a PDF and they said, well, can you send it as a Word document? I said, no, you're going to have to redo it yourself. You're not going to Let me tell you, I know something a little bit something about asking for Word documents. Like, I want PDF because that yeah. opens like, it opens fine and everything, but yeah. So what we did is we developed this new pretrial intervention uh, program. It was being so effective that uh, we decided one of our um, uh, program coordinators said, you know, we probably could do this with juveniles. So we did a test program in Acadia uh, Parish, and it was phenomenal. The parents loved it. The kids uh, enjoyed it. We've got motivational speakers. We can identify if there's a mental health issue, if there's a family issue, if it's an economic resource issue, and then we can direct them to where they need to go. And I've I'm, I'm been so excited about this that we're going to um, – bring it into Lafayette, and we're going to bring it into uh, Vermilion Parish as well. And I, I think it's going to make a big difference. That's awesome. Um, I mean, anything with trying to get juveniles, you know, aligned right, and like you said, it says right here, to grow, to be productive members of the community. I mean, it starts it starts off at a young age, man. I mean, you get on the wrong path, I mean, that's it. Yep. Uh, I've, I've come close to being on a, a potential wrong path, and... Of course, my mom and dad, they, uh, I like to say they raised me right, but, you know, uh, they, they kind of kept drilling in my head, you know, you, shouldn't, you probably shouldn't be hanging out with these people. Right. Well, we're, we're all human beings, and yeah. uh, everybody makes mistakes. And so the question is, you hope that the mistakes they make aren't life-changing. Um, you know, that we're having an increase of um, uh, violent crime amongst young people, um, you know, and what do you think that's? Uh, what do you think the cause of that is? Like, what do you think? It's, it's just 
is it just kind of an evolvement of or evolving of just the times or like is there any particular I, thing? I, I think social media okay. has a lot to do with it um, you know and as a public service announcement right now one thing that I would encourage to anybody that's listening is if you have guns okay and you leave them in your car either bring them inside at night or lock them up because a lot of young people are stealing guns and they're that's where a lot of these uh, tragedies are coming from because the guns are getting on the streets. But uh, I think there's been a certain dehumanizing effect of social media uh, where there's so much violence that you see. Um, you know, you wouldn't have had that in the 50s and 60s. So, so when it's just out there all the time, they don't think that you can't pull that trigger and pull that bullet back. And the consequences that go after that are, are tragic. Yeah, yeah. Social media has done some interesting things, both good and bad. Yes. For the the world, um, I don't want to go too deep into that because we can. Uh, that could be a whole. Well, we're on social media, right? Now, I know so, we're on, look, yeah. we're using it, but we're using it um, productively. Productively, I think we're using it for good. I, I like to use social media for good. Um, I've been doing what I do for eight years, and I like to think that it's putting Lafayette in a better light, but. Um, you know, it's, it's still people can use social media for uh, ill intent. Um, so I want to I want to touch base on uh, something and kind of I guess understand um, this a little bit. So uh, right here you have I have that you are or you have it says represented the police association association of Lafayette for more than thirty years and are a legal member of the. Uh, Fraternal Order of Police and Professional Law Enforcement Association. What is what does that mean? Like, what is the Fraternal the, Order the of Police? Fraternal Order of Police is a national organization that supports law enforcement. Um, sometimes they have um, disciplinary proceedings. Um, there's investigations, and they as you and I are entitled to legal counsel, but their issues tend to be more unique because of most departments are covered under civil service law. And there's probably about five or six of us in the state that have some expertise in the area of civil service laws. Um, you know, I've represented several civil service boards. Uh, I've represented the actual uh, appointing authorities of the governmental bodies, uh, dealing with the civil service laws it's kind of a niche area in the law okay it's just the the word fraternal uh it makes me think of a frat like a frat house right and so i know this past this past few months there's been talk of like cops being um kind of like you know protecting the other cops regardless of what those particular cops do and you know and there's certain instances i won't bring them up but um, is that kind of what that is, or is there a is that a different understanding? That's that's a different understanding. It's I don't know why they call it the fraternal. It's one of the I think one of the original uh, groups of you know they provide benefits for survivors that, gotcha. of of law enforcement people that have been killed every year. They have what's the police memorial week to honor the hundreds of police officers that are killed. Uh, it's more of a support organization for them. Uh, I can tell you historically 36 years with interacting with law enforcement, most of the police officers, if they're aware of a bad apple, they want them gone. 
Okay. Uh, that, that was, that was going to be my next question is like, what is your, I guess, thoughts on like how to treat or how to like reprimand a police officer who's abusing their, their uh, position? Um, you know, cause look, I knew, I knew some family members and some cousins and different uh, people in my, my circle who have been police officers and they never really done anything out of, out of what I would feel like is abusive but some of the things that they have been able to get away with i'm like god I, as a civilian i would never have been been able to get away with that like for one example going back to speeding um i rode with a particular family member and he kept his badge on him and he was going like probably 80 miles an hour in a 55 a police officer in, a, in, in his unit whips around pulls pulls us over well, the police officer pulls up to the window. My my family member shows a badge, and the police officer's like, "Oh, all right, sir. You have a good day." I'm like, "Can I get a badge?" <laughs> like, I want well, one of those. Shame, shame on both of them. Um, shame on both of them. Yeah, I know it's crazy. Um, I was I was blown away by that. I'm like, God, that it, it just doesn't. It didn't sit right with me, and I. No, it shouldn't I, sit right. With yeah, me. and and so I think that that's one of the things that people think about is that a cop can do wrong, and that's a general perception from civilians. A cop can do wrong, not necessarily like okay, murdering somebody. I think that I think most people look at that as like okay, that's bad, and especially in certain cases that have just recently happened, but just just doing doing things that are just normal civilians would get in trouble for you know the the population is like well why aren't they why is that allowed and and i don't think but you're, it's ma- you're making assumptions that it's allowed right it seems allowed right i'm going off of assumption yes right. it seems allowed so uh, my experience is it's not because um you know when they get caught or they get involved in it they get disciplined um the probably the best thing that happened is body cams. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, Cause the amount of complaints against uh, law enforcement officers have gone down dramatic dramatically because you know, people argue, well, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Well, it's now all on body cam. And let me tell you something, when they make a mistake or they do something you're talking about, that's inappropriate. It's on the body cam too. So, uh, I love it as a yeah. prosecutor uh, because we can see what's going on. Uh, we can see and almost be there. Uh, when I first started as a prosecutor, I used to ride with the police all the time. And we would go out to all of the major uh, homicide cases, which is something that had kind of gone away. But when elected DA, I'm bringing that back because it's important uh, for us to be involved at that stage. because. You know, the police make an arrest, but the case is really not over with until that jury returns. So right. I want law enforcement involved with us from the beginning to the end because uh, we have what's called vertical prosecution. So if a case comes in our office and it's assigned to me, I start with it and I finish it. You know, in some other jurisdictions like Orleans Parish, they have uh, a screening division. And then they have a trial division, and then they have an appellate division. So you have three different people that touch a file. 
we do it by vertical prosecution, which means you're always familiar with it, you're familiar with the officers that are involved in it, you're familiar with the victims, um, and if you have to appeal it, you're familiar with the facts to make the arguments to the appeals courts. Okay. Um, I want to go. I want to go back to the the body cam talk. So recently, um, there was there was something happened in Lafayette, and I don't know if you can speak on it. I don't know how much. Obviously, you're shaking your head. No. So um, I'll tell you as a general rule, which is another public information for everybody. Um, we have. Uh, ethical uh, constraints that are put on lawyers in general. There's some ethical rules they have to follow. There's a special set for prosecutors. And we're not allowed to comment on an ongoing investigation. And it's actually designed to protect the potential criminal defendants because if we were able to make commentary, we could say, oh, he's a horrible baby killer and all that stuff. So they would be prejudiced and the, the tone of the prosecution could be set before the evidence even came in. So we're prohibited from commenting to the public uh, until the, the investigation is complete, being that some action is being taken, whether they're being formally charged not being formally charged or being presented to a grand jury. A lot of people don't understand that, uh, but that is an ethical obligation that we're prohibited from discussing on anything that is an active investigation. Okay. Okay. So without your commentary, I'm just, uh, you know, I think with body cam footage, like you said, you love it. I I love the body cam footage because I used to watch uh, whenever before it got canceled, um, (laughs) live PD, uh, there was another one, uh, PD Cam, wow. and it was all body cam footage. Uh, very rarely was there an actual like you know, handheld person walking around. It's usually the body cam footage that was like the stuff you really, you know, the things that you the you want to see in police action are hardly ever caught by someone actually recording. It's usually right. an body cam or the, the the unit cam. And so with this particular case that recently happened, I think. A lot of people are waiting for the body cam footage because there's so much speculation on what actually happened, what was actually in this particular person's hand, you know. And you know, recent news is that the mayor president Josh Guillory was going to, and I think he still is working towards getting that body cam footage to be presented. But I think he got held back for some reason. I don't know the exact reason. Um, but I just I find it weird that we still haven't seen the body cam footage, and I don't know if you can put a like a general statement on why. I mean, you kind of already said, but why why body cam footage will be held, or is it a rule of thumb that body cam footage is held for a certain amount of time? Because I've heard, and I don't know how. Like I said, this is just me going off of what I've heard. That certain some states have um, whatever. I guess ruling that if a shooting happens between a police officer and a suspect uh, or a victim, that the body cam footage is almost immediately released. I don't know how true that is. There is some uh, other, it might even be California, there are a couple of states where um, there's like a uh, seven-day window or something that they're required to release. We don't have any such law uh, here. Basically, uh, normally, the law enforcement agencies don't want to piecemeal 
the release of evidence because body cam uh, footage is evidence. Um, We upload it. Uh, when cases come in, it's uploaded into our system, into that new case management system. So, you know, you may, uh, if it's multiple officers involved in it and multiple units, you may have 60 hours of video to, to review. Oh, so the, the most law enforcement agencies policy is until the investigation is complete, because, you know, say you get 12 body cams, but you've got three pole cameras or uh, cameras from uh, inside of a a place or whatever, and you don't have that yet. And, you know, while body cams are great, it is a camera, okay? Uh, And it doesn't, depending on your depth of feel, and I know a lot about this because photography is is a passion mine, you know, the, the lighting changes. Uh, whether you're backlit or things. So if they say the gentleman had a white shirt on, but they've got a a backlit in the body cam, it's going to look like a dark shirt. So they'd like to have a complete package put together so that when it's turned over to our office, that we're not calling back and saying, well, where's this? Where's that? Where's this? Where's that? Um, So... uh, it's a process. And the problem is in our society nowadays, everybody wants everything immediately. Yeah. Yeah. That's the social media. We can't be driven by public demand. We have to do what's right, which means we have to do a thorough investigation. Um, and we, we want the full package. Um, you know, and it's designed to protect everybody. Um, and that's the, the way the system has worked for years. If the legislature determines that there should be a requirement for law enforcement to release it, that's the law. Yeah. And that's our job is to, the rule of law, to follow what the legislature tells us to do. Yeah. And, and like you said, body cam, like you said, it's a camera. And even with um, watching some of the shows like PD Cam and Live PD, the body cam, while it's a great view, sometimes there's the police officer's hands in the way so you don't right. see what's right. actually happening unless you have the other perspectives. But then, you know, that's hours of footage that you'd have to sift through to find right. the piece that you need. Um, and then you may not even get the right view or, like, the camera might be dislodged. You know, I know different things can happen like that. It's just, it was just, I was just curious because I'm hearing a lot of talk about the, the body cam footage of this particular incident. And why is it taking so long? And obviously, if it's part of the complete investigation, that's why it's taking so long. Because I don't know if you know, but I have no clue when this investigation is going to be completed. Because it sounds like it's a pretty lengthy one, especially with several officers seemingly to be involved. But yeah. Um, what else is there to say about you running as far as district attorney? What are some of your immediate goals if you're elected? Well, the immediate pressing goal that we're going to have is going to be budgetary issues. Um, We've done a really good job at scrubbing our budget. Um, uh, We've had several people retire. We have not filled those positions. Uh, We're learning to do more with less. Uh, So that's going to be an immediate issue. Um, You know, you're dealing with three parishes. We deal with state funding police jury funding in Vermilion and Acadia, uh, LCG funding, parish versus city (laughs) issue. Um, You know, we have with the COVID and um, restriction of services that happened with the public defender's office, 
We have a backlog of cases which uh, needs to be addressed. Uh, and unfortunately, we don't have a criminal division of judges. We have uh, a civil bench and then the civil attorneys, I mean judges, uh, rotate through a criminal uh, section. And you know, if we could get some dedicated trial weeks, uh, we did it once before under one of the previous DAs. We had what was called a super docket. Uh, and we said, okay, judges, y'all give us four weeks and let's just line them up and, and take off. So uh, that's, uh, you know, some things that I want to focus on immediately. There is some restructuring um, to maybe have some specialized trial teams that can go into all three parishes and deal with it. And I'm real excited about the juvenile pretrial programs. And uh, I have some other concepts of getting the um, school system involved, uh, early uh, identification of potential problems where we can get the community leaders, the church leaders involved to where they identify the young people that may be going down the wrong road and the community gets involved. And then we as a support and law enforcement uh, can come to them and say, okay, here's what's going to happen if you go down this road. Right. So let's try to help you and prevent it. Okay. Well, cool. Um, so we're getting close here. I want to go ahead and put your website up. Uh, if, if you want to look up um, Daniel Landry a little bit more and get to know Danny, um, there's his website. It's just uh, daniellandry.com. Um, you can read all about his uh, experiences. You can read about his um his, his passions, he loves photography. Uh, he kind of mentioned that. Um, and then you said you like to, uh, I think on your website, you said you like to hang out in the marsh uh, area. I'm pretty sure that's a great photography area yes. too. Um, and then, so if you, you can go to that website. You can look up all his uh, educational experiences and, uh, of course, family and then tons of other stuff and get to know a little bit more about him uh, and make your decision on if... Uh, Danny Landry is the candidate that you want to put your vote for towards and that is November 3rd right the vote? correct yep same as presidential and we're what's considered down ballot it's probably one of the most important elections this country's gonna have in a while um, there's gonna be a bunch of us on there but uh, this is a very important so no matter who you vote for they need to get out and vote um, there's some deadlines coming up to register to vote uh, the Absentee balloting is currently in litigation, um, so this is typical 2020 stuff. Yeah, but, it's 2020 uh, all over. You know, and if they have any particular questions to ask of me, I do have email and a phone number on the website because uh, I really would like to finish my career in community service because I think it's important for everybody to give back to the community, and I'd like to do it as their DA. Awesome. Well, uh, before we go, uh, I ask everybody who's uh, running for an office kind of things that I think are non-political. I try to try to incorporate that in there. So, uh, in Lafayette or in the three parishes that you kind of you know um, work in, or it could be anywhere, um, what are some of your favorite places to eat? Um, I love Judy Sin. Judy Sin, yeah. <laughs> so, um, that's probably, you know, I'm a big hamburger guy. If, if I can find a, a good hamburger, and I've, I've located uh, several places, but um, 
Okay, so uh, if you're a hamburger guy, what's your top three hamburger places that you go to? Uh, no Ju- particular order. Okay, Judy Sin, Judy Sin, Judy Sin. God, all right. <laughs> so you are you you. So you're okay without fries. Yes, obviously. I'm absolutely okay. Are you a crawl taters guy? No, no, no. What? So do you get chips on the side? Uh, the zaps regular. If, okay, if the regular. I'm, I'm a crawl taters guy. I love so. crawl taters zaps. Uh, you know, that's a whole big debate there is like, why don't they have fries? And uh, it's simply um, whenever they, when Judy Sand first got started, they just didn't have the space to right. store fries. Right. Well, so, like I said, I'm an old Lafayette. Yeah, so yeah. I spent a lot of time at Judy Sand. I went to Lafayette High School. We would always stop there before the Friday. Were you night. around when Judy Sand was on a dirt road? <laughs> uh, actually, the dirt road began a little bit, a little, know, bit, a little, a little bit further than that. And right across the street was the tw- uh, drive in. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you used to be able to park on Doucet Road and watch the movies. You couldn't hear the sound. But, um, so. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> Gosh, it's, lots has changed. I mean, I moved here in 2010, so uh, my, my experiences of Lafayette are relatively new. Um, and seeing pictures, especially when you go to Judy Sin, you can see all the old pictures. And it's weird to think that Judy Sin was these, like the far end of town. Yes. And now it's like, it's almost the north part of the side yeah, of the Lafayette. Right. But yeah, smack dab in the center. All right, uh, Danny, it was a pleasure having you on. I hope that we were able to cover most of anything that we wanted to talk about. If not, is there anything that before we go that you would like to make sure people know? Uh, not really, just that I love Lafayette, I love Acadiana. Um, we have a lot that we need to protect here, um, and we need to keep our, our community moving the right direction. Sounds good. All right, guys, and remember, um, we are sponsored by the Music Academy of Acadiana, so if you want to learn music or anything music-related, voice-related, uh, check them out, uh, musicacademyacadiana.com. And that is it for the tea, and we'll see you next Friday. All right, Danny, it was a pleasure. Thank you. For information on sponsoring the Tea Podcast by Developing Lafayette, go to our website at developinglafayette.com and click Advertise.